Welcome back to the show. This is episode four. It's 846 AM on a Thursday morning, and you're listening to the Abstract Podcast. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven, maker of earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified and dead and buried. I believe that he who suffered was crucified, buried and dead. He descended into hell and on the third day rose again. He ascended into heaven where he sits at God's mighty right hand. I believe that he is returning to judge the quick and the dead and the sons of men. And I believe what I believe. That's what makes me what I am. I did not make it, but it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. I've been thinking about this song a lot uh, the last couple days. The, the one phrase that keeps running through my head is, I believe what I believe, and that's what makes me what I am. And then this line, I did not make it, but it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, as I said, it's Thursday morning. Um, it's just me here in the studio today. Colin is not recording with me today, just not able to be in here for some personal reasons, but the show must go on. And uh, so, yeah, looking forward to what we have to dive into today. But I did want to just start out with a with a word, maybe a discussion about, you know, what the Abstract Podcast is. When me and Colin um, first started coming to TFC, I think it was actually in our second semester, the opportunity was presented to me to be the radio station manager to make a whopping $6.50 an hour with a maximum of about 10 hours a week. And uh, when I took the position over, you know, it was a disaster down here. There was boxes in the studio. There were cobwebs everywhere. The publications room was just a kind of a forgotten disaster. And over the last three or four semesters, Colin and I have worked together um, we've turned this studio into something a lot different than it was. We now have a much better microphone setup than we were given. We have nicer chairs out in the publications room. They're now hanging plants and lights where they were once only dust, spider webs, loose books laying around. And we got a new table. We got more chairs. We hung things on the walls. We've really taken taken ownership of this place and really, really made it into something a lot better than it was. And in the, in the process of that, we started our own podcast and, um, really for lack of a better name, we called it the abstract podcast. And we used to start every show, um, with, uh, kind of, kind of the reminder of what we were about. We said, um, welcome to the abstract podcast, our podcast about conversations that matter. I think from the beginning, that's what we've aimed to do. We've aimed to create a space where conversations about ideas that actually matter um, can find a home. And, you know, we've been thinking lately about, about why it is that we've done that. And I think maybe one of the reasons is that, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of places, there are conversations that are not allowed to be had um, where you, 
where you not only have to hold certain positions, but you really can't enter into the discussion at all. And I guess maybe that's why I've been thinking about this song Creed so much. Um, I believe what I believe, and that's what makes me who I am. I did not make it, but it is making me. And it's this idea that the, the truths that we are searching for, the foundations of our faith, they are, they are foundational, they are solid, they are eternal, they are um, primary. You know, God does not change, the world changes. God does not change, I change. The faith that I, that I believe in, I did not make. I am being made. It is making me. And I think that's what the Abstract Podcast is. That's what it was created to do. Um, The Abstract Podcast was created to be this space where our faith has a chance to make us. Um, I'm also taking a class right now on Genesis, and we're talking a lot about the character of Jacob. Um, Jacob goes through a long period of his life, and then he gets a new name, and his new name is Israel. Israel means one who wrestles with God. And I, I find that really interesting in that, that the children of Israel, it means you know, we come from one who wrestles with God or we are the ones that wrestle with God. And you know, that's a very different concept of Allah. Um, Allah tells you how it is and there is no wrestling. Allah is about force. Allah gets his will. Allah's will must be done. Yahweh is, is a God that oftentimes the heroes of these stories, you know, they have to wrestle with God. Maybe they don't, they don't understand, you know, Abraham doesn't understand why he must sacrifice Isaac. These characters, you know, if, if we're honest, they might not even like God a lot of the time or, or some of the time when they're, when they must wrestle with him. But it's this idea that I did not make this primary foundational truth. It is making me and I think that's what the podcast, that's what the podcast is for. Um, it's not a place where we come to just talk about sports because that would be easier. You know, there would be a lot easier things to talk about than, than the stuff that we tend to dive into. But I think that's because, um, you know, as college students, we needed, we needed a space where we can, we can actually tackle what we're thinking about. We can actually have a place to wrestle. And to wrestle doesn't mean that you get in the ring and it's like WWE where it's scripted and you know who's going to win at the end. WWE is not real. <laughs> and most of the people watching know that, hopefully. But um, the wrestling that we do with God, it is real. And the wrestling that Colin and I do in this studio, it is real. Um, I've said before, <laughs> and I think everyone who... I don't know. I shouldn't say everyone, but I think those who are honest and who want to understand should should start from the perspective that, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going to land on some things. Um, homosexuality has been one of the topics that we've been talking about lately. And um, I know that Colin holds to a traditional sexual ethic. He's very strong in that. And um, I think that's where I'm arriving at myself. As I work through it, as I read literature, as I hear discussions about it, a traditional sexual ethic makes sense to me. Um, I've been looking a lot at an Augustinian theology developed in the 4th and 5th century and how that's really become foundational for the church, how that's really carried through. Um, I've been drawn to the idea that procreation must be 
such a such a primary good of marriage, as Augustine argued. But I think that in the end, Colin and I do arrive at a sexual, um, a traditional sexual ethic, but it's been really good for us to sit here and wrestle and honestly confront the ideas that we have to be talking about and and to be true to the to the phrase that Rich Mullins goes for here. I did not make this truth, but it is making me. And the process of being made means entering into wrestling and really doing your due diligence. And I think in order to do that due diligence, to order to do that wrestling, to, to look something in the eye, um, you have to have a space where you can do that. And I, I think that's what the Abstract Podcast has hoped has hoped to be. Um, I remember in the the Rich Mullins movie, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> it's not like super high budget, but I do cry every time. Um, I, th- I think it's in the movie. Maybe it was just in an interview. But Amy Grant says, she describes Rich Mullins as, you know, we all kind of wonder what's out there in the abyss, <laughs> off the dark edge. Rich Mullins was a guy who was able to walk up to that edge, look out into the abyss, and tell us what was out there. And um, I think that's why so many people like Rich's song so much. Um, you know, yesterday, <clears throat> I was thinking, you know, in the past week, um, I had something happen to me that's that's never happened before. I had... I had one of my friends come up to me and tell me that that they were not straight, that they were gay. I'd never had someone come up to me and tell me that before. And, you know, I guess I was reminded that these things that we're talking about, they matter. They matter to some people more than other people for for different reasons. But if we refuse to engage with these topics, then I don't think we ever have anything to say um, to people who don't look like us. If we're not willing to take an honest look or, you know, if we condemn people who who do take an honest look at it. So with that rambling introduction, um, I want to go ahead and get into the meat here of episode four. It's going to be a little bit different doing this by myself because Colin really helps me. Plays off, We play off of each other. But um, we did. One thing we did do um, is we're always interested to hear feedback and questions that people pose. And so we're going to be looking at a few questions that listeners had. Um, one comes from a good friend who says, what does a modern American patriot look like? I think this is a really good question. It's something that I know I've been wrestling with (laughs) if we can get back to that what does a modern american patriot look like and when he says modern here um contemporary not in the sense of modernity excuse me so reached out to a few friends um these are people who i've i've kind of went into discussion with this before and enjoyed what they had to say and so i was like i'll reach out to them and read what they have to say on the air so the first Response um, was from Carl Overholt. Carl and I had kind of gone back and forth on Twitter asking, you know, just entering into this conversation about patriotism, Christianity. What does it mean? Um, How does one go about kind of this tension that we find ourselves in as Americans, but as Christians and, you know, this church and state? It it is a tension that we live in. So I want to read Carl's um, response. Carl gave a good response here. It's about, I don't know, a few paragraphs. 
So he kind of numbered it. He said, one, when I originally think of a patriot, I think of those men and women that weren't happy under the British rule and decided to fight what they viewed as unfair. They witnessed certain abuses and injustices and wanted to establish a better way. He says, two, I would think... I would like to think the modern vision version of a patriot is a man or woman that takes pride in standing for what is right, or who, like the originals, witnesses abuse or injustice and wants to fight for a better way. Um, he goes on, what is right, quote unquote, can be misconstrued and warped pretty quickly. I do believe the United States was formed by people who genuinely wanted a better humanity. Sure, there are people in the mix with bad intentions and motives, but I chose to believe that there were certain pillars that this country was built on that made God happy. Those pillars are what I feel an American patriot wants to ensure are not torn down. And if they are under attack, these pillars get rebuilt. I know that the American patriot, sorry, I know the term American patriot means to some that a specific person loves their country more than anything else. To me, that is just a narcissist with a cause. I thought that was a good phrase. A true American patriot wants to see God rule sovereign because he or she understands that without him, God, leading the charge, we are destined for failure like so many before us. A patriot will die for the cause, but that cause should always align with God's leading. There is a balance between this world is not our home and our country is the greatest thing in our lives. So Carl does speak to this tension. Um, but he, you know, he definitely, uh, I would say, is on board with the opinion that a Christian can and should be a patriot. And maybe more to the point that a patriot is someone who should honor God. And um, I guess like this, this belief about God is kind of primary in their love of their country. So Carl finishes out saying, in short, to be a patriot in my eyes, God first, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Biblical principles must apply. Family, um, which doesn't just mean your blood relatives. Next, love your neighbor as yourself. It's impossible for me to separate Christianity and patriotism. My personal belief that the original intent of the founding fathers was to build this country on biblical principles probably plays into that thought process. And yes, I would agree with Carl. That certainly does play into that process. But really appreciate Carl taking time to respond, to give us that view. Um, also wanted to reach out to someone who I knew would have a bit of a different perspective. Um, one of my friends, Matthew Maloney. Um, one of the wonders of Facebook. You can actually be friends with people that you've never met before. I've never met Matthew. I think he lives in the Boston area. Could be wrong. Matthew is a very thoughtful um, person whom I really enjoy reading. And he comes from a, a bit of a different take on that. <laughs> you can even tell that because he just, he kind of had to have me clarify the question because I think, well, you'll, you'll understand. Matthew writes, it's hard to give a concise answer to the question because there is so much worldview baked into the question itself. The question being, what does it mean to be a modern American patriot? Matthew goes on, what does it mean to be a Christian American patriot? What do we mean by Christian? What do we mean by American? And what do we mean by patriot? <laughs> I think I can answer the question in brief by just offering my, term, my definition of the terms. When I say Christian, I mean a follower of the King Jesus. Christ is not a family name of Jesus of Nazareth. It means the anointed one, and he was anointed as a now and present king of his people, just like he told Pilate. When I say Christian, I mean the disciples of Jesus' teachings and subjects of his kingdom. That forces me to define America as a place where I happen to live, not coincidentally as a stranger and a pilgrim, a sojourner. 
Since I have joined the kingdom of Jesus, I have left my native position and become like those in Hebrews 11, seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. I thought that was an interesting phrase there. Um, leaving the leaving the kingdom for Jesus. Since my citizenship is in heaven, I embrace America as a diplomatic assignment as an ambassador from the kingdom of God to America. So what is a patriot? The word comes from pater, maybe potter, I'm not sure, or father. So some sense of having a common father or coming from the fatherland are baked into the language. I must consider patriotism to be an allegiance to the kingdom of God. No, I read that wrong. I consider my patriotism to be an allegiance to the kingdom of God. To be a good citizen in the kingdom of God is to represent the king well. Ironically, this disposition serves Christians in every land and time. And I thought this was also interesting. Whether in the first century in Rome or the 20th century in America, we, we love our neighbors, care for the poor, desire well for our fellows, and serve those around us. We pray for peace. We work for justice. We love the loveless. These make us and those before us very valuable to every nation where our people have lived through time and across borders. So he kind of sums up. Short answer, I believe government is predicated on coercion and force, and Christians should not use those powers. So from what I know of Matthew, he does not vote. Just kind of out of this um, ethic of Christianity is something that is separate from um, the powers of this world. And, and from Matthew's perspective, um, government is predicated on coercion and force and, and taking power for oneself. And, and so that doesn't really allow him to, to participate in um, what we have deemed the democratic process. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot more we could say about these two issues, these two views, but um, I respect them both. And I think it's good to hear from both. Um, some of the things that kind of came to my mind as I worked down through this Google document that Kyle and I put together um, for the show today, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke does talk a lot about, um, whereas in the other, other Gospels, sometimes they would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke simply says, blessed are the poor, you know, indicating that those who are weak and powerless are blessed. They are close to the heart of God. Um, I also think of Mary's song, which I believe is in Luke 2. No, Luke somewhere. And Mary talks about how the the poor are raised up and the rich go away empty. And just this idea that, you know, if you are weak and powerless, you are near to the heart of God. And at some level, it, that does kind of seem to go against me having my political party and trying to get them into power. But um, I do vote, so I guess... Yeah, this is something I'm definitely still working through. But um, I, I did also think, you know, so maybe maybe you could view it as as kind of a privilege to choose whether or not you want to vote, whether or not you want to um, be a part of that. Because conversation I was having with someone the other day, you know, if you associate yourself with the LGBTQ community or maybe you belong to a minority group, um, you know, you might see your voting as the way that you love the people around you. And, you know, that's not just true if you're part of a minority group. I think everyone who votes should have this perspective too. But I think maybe some people feel like they have more skin in the game, more at stake than others. And maybe if I don't feel that way myself, maybe that speaks to my position in society. So just some thoughts on that. 
Um, there was a story about a rat that we're not doing. Let's see. <laughs> so, another friend, relative actually, brought up this question, which was Colin's question to tackle. Um, you know, the Bible talks a lot about judging. So, what what does it actually say? What is uh, what should Christians do? you know, with this idea of judging or not judging. And so I'm going to read down through what Colin has for us. Matthew 7, 1 through 7, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Like, wow, that's some really interesting language. Um, so the question is, the Bible speaks of judging. What does that actually mean? And then in Matthew 7, excuse me, 6, this thing about casting our pearls before swine, like the, the listener asked, how should we practice that in today's culture? So I'm going to work down through these notes here. Um, the word judge, which this uh, language appears to be Greek here, has a semantic range of both discernment and condemnation or ordering. Jesus obviously has in mind the latter, which is condemnation or ordering. Um, and he will call them to distinguish between true and false prophets in Matthew 7 and Luke 6. Um, in Luke 6, 37, do not judge or you too will be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. And so I think this is where Colin is pointing at. Um, you know, this, this thing that Jesus is talking about condemnation, not really discernment. Jesus makes the statements with a cultural backdrop of an understanding of some people being acceptable and some not Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, righteous, unrighteous. So kind of the ones who are in and the ones who are out. Jesus viewed them. Jews viewed themselves as better than the Gentiles who they viewed as dogs. Um, there's also this dynamic of the rich, you know, traditionally, <laughs> The rich are seen as the ones who have been blessed by God, right? They've done right. And so God has blessed them. And the poor have been cursed by God because um, they didn't become rich, I guess. The idea behind what Jesus is prohibiting is the idea of value. Fundamentally, Christians cannot participate in finding value by devaluing others. So if the more person or group X is pushed down, then the higher I am elevated. Um, Quote here by Sky Jatani, our worth requires someone else's condemnation. At that point, I think we are judging in a way that we should not be judged. If you can disagree, wait. Uh, not really sure what that means. Another quote here, you can't love and judge at the same time because it's impossible to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others when you're using others to ascribe worth to yourself. Greg Boyd. And this this kind of takes me back, I guess, to the conversation that we had last week where um, we brought up Bruce Waltke, um, this Old Testament scholar who, who summarizes the Proverbs saying, the wise man is one who will um, disadvantage himself for the advantage of his community. And the foolish man is one who would exploit his community for the advantage of himself. And then this pearls before swine 
kind of language. <laughs> I love Colin inserts here. Um, a good line by the theologian Kenny Rogers. <laughs> know when to hold them, know when to fold them. So um, Colin says, I think essentially this entails wisdom of redeemable and irredeemable spaces for Christians to dedicate their time. So he's talking about, you know, what spaces are really worthwhile diving into and which ones are not. And so that would be Colin's idea of what it means to cast your pearls before swine. And I would have to agree with him. Seems fitting that a passage on prayer is what follows. That's interesting. Um, the fourth thing that we are going to dive into today is what we've been listening to. Personally, I have not been listening to very much music. I did listen to the song Creed about five times in a row. Um, but unfortunately, I really haven't been listening to that much music. I've, I've been doing more reading. I think I go in phases where I really listen to music, play my guitar, maybe even write some songs. I'm not in one of those phases right now. I've been been doing a lot of reading. Um, I've been listening to Preston, Preston Sprinkle's podcast, Theology in the Raw, which I've, I've been finding interesting. Um, I think Sprinkle's, <laughs> Preston Sprinkle, is, is doing actually a lot of what we're trying to do here, where he just he dives into things that are hard and tries to have good conversations about them. And so I've enjoyed his effort in doing that. Another, I think I note on that. I think one thing that me and Colin both definitely share a view on is like this theology of work. That no matter what you're doing, you ought to do it for the glory of God. And um, you know, academic inquiry is no different. We we don't we shouldn't see our work as an academic inquiry as really different from you know when we're when we go out and we change a tire. Like we're fundamentally seeking to honor God. And, and I think in both pursuits, um, they look much more different. They look much differently. Your hands get much dirtier in one and you probably become much more confused in the other <laughs> sometimes. Actually, not for me. When I change tires, I probably get actually really confused too. Not very mechanically minded. But um, yeah. So I've also been reading The Trial by Franz Kafka. Um, mostly because I heard of Kafka in a movie I was watching. He was referred to a lot, and then I kept seeing his name pop up other places. Kafka is a writer, um, a novelist, fiction writer. Um, I don't believe he's alive any longer. But um, kind of one of these people who stands out as uh, maybe like a postmodern kind of thinker. And so I was interested to just see what that even looked like in his writing. And um, I'm reading The Trial because I looked it up, and that appears to be one of his more renowned books. So I was borrowed it from the library. You can actually do this thing at the library called interlibrary loans, where if your library doesn't have it, you fill out a form, and you give it to them, and they find a library that does have it, and they get it for you. And I just think that, that is one of the coolest things ever. So I did that, and I got the trial by Franz Kafka. And it's actually really difficult to read. And I have yet to look into this, but it's like there are no paragraph separations there are chapter separations, but there's no paragraph or quotation separation. So it can become very difficult to really tell. There's not much of a structure or flow to it, and it's hard to tell who's speaking. Um, it was translated from another language, so I don't think that helps a lot. And I think this was intentional, but I could look and just see if it was this particular publisher. <laughs> but um, I know that the book is going to end, and really without ending. That was kind of one of Kafka's ideas that was that you present a story and then you actually don't finish it. I think he's making a statement there about reality. So anyway, the trial, bit of a tedious read at this point, but interesting. 
And lastly, before we wrap up, I do want to turn a bit to some thoughts on the debate. Um, I think we put this topic last because it seemed of least importance. <laughs> um, the presidential debate, let's see, that was uh, two nights ago. The best way that I could sum up the debate was an unmitigated disaster. Um, it was... it. It truly looked like two schoolboys out in a yard whacking each other over the head with a baseball bat. And we were all just spectating when it was like we should have been getting in there and just calling the thing. Um, one thing I do think is really interesting is how some people have <laughs> turned on Chris Wallace and kind of – and even Donald Trump has done this on his um, Twitter page like – Saying that somehow Trump had to debate Wallace and Biden, like Wallace was was being unfair to Trump. And um, one thing I I actually find this really interesting. And what I'm about to say, I don't say this in a critical or well critical, not in the sense of being derogatory or negative, but critical in the sense of you know investigation. I think Trump is super super good at playing at playing this victim role. And I know that kind of comes with a lot of negative connotations, but I think it's it's one of his strategies that works really well because I think a lot of Trump's base actually feels really, um, really like taken advantage of or forgotten, victimized by kind of the left and the the progressive movement. And so when Trump says things like, you know, the liberal news media never gives me a fair shake or Chris Wallace, I had to debate Chris Wallace and Joe Biden. Like, I was the one who had to rise to the occasion against everyone who was coming down against me. I think that a lot of people actually really resonate with this as they feel like their values and um, what they care about maybe has been largely forgotten or the world has changed and they have not changed kind of thing. So this idea of, of this narrative that kind of the right portrays and is – and is on board with is that we are the victims and it's us against the world. And I don't know, it's a rallying call for Trump. I think it's working well. Um, I, I found this quote. It was actually shared by um, Christopher Whitmer on Facebook, which I thought was really good. He He's quoting Dan White Jr., whom I don't really know who that is. And the quote is, the debate we are watching is a mirror. It is us. We are seeing our marriages, our relationships, our churches, our social media engagements reenacted on national television. And I was like, wow, I think that's really insightful. Um, some people have said that, you know, Donald Trump did not change America. His presidency has revealed America. And so it's the same idea with this debate. It's, it's, it's not that, you know, these two presidents have delved into the pits of despair without us. I mean, they've delved into some... Horrific debate. Like, it was just, it was awful. Like, they're just arguing the whole time, really no respect for the, the structure of the debate or the moderator. It was just this awful, horrific thing that you couldn't help but laugh at. But, you know, maybe they're not so much taking America there as revealing what we have become. As White says, the debate we're watching is a mirror. We're seeing our marriages, our relationships, our churches, our social media engagements reacted on national television. It's like, have this is this what we've become? where we can no longer thoughtfully engage issues without simply condemning people? Like, are we no longer able to wrestle and disagree with one another without having to condemn the other? Like, if you don't agree with me, if you don't land at the right position, then you no longer have a place at the table. Like, you no longer can have fellowship if you don't agree. And 
I really appreciate what White's doing here. He's saying, you know, the debate is a mirror. It's it's not something, I mean, it's something we can laugh at. It was a spectacle, but in doing so, perhaps we laugh at ourselves. Is this what we've become when um, two people or a group of people, you, you, you can't, you can't enter into a decent dialogue because if the other person isn't going to land where you're going to land, um, you know, you can't you can't be in the same room or or you need to get that person help so that they can they can see things the way you see them. And I think, yeah, that's a sad place to be. Um, another quote that I found was really interesting was Brian Francis Culkin. Um, he writes, the looming violence ha- hanging over America, and for that matter, global society, could not be more different f- than the Civil War. And I should preface, Culkin isn't talking about the debate here. He's, he's making a different point. He's saying it could not be more different from the Civil War. In the Civil War, there were clear geographical demarcations, clear divisions that we see even in the split between the blue and gray uniforms that serve to unmistakably inscribe difference into the conflict. So he's saying, like, you could tell which side people were on by what they were wearing or where they lived. The problem today is not so much irreconcilable difference as it is irreconcilable sameness. That's interesting. The problem today is not so much the possibility of a new civil war, a clear battle of MAGA versus wokeness, but it's rather a very messy Habesian war of all against all. The more the Democrats and Republicans try to assert their ideology, ideological differences and policy disagreements on the same on the level of content the more they show us that they are locked into a structural process of the same and i like how he finishes this analogy when two boys are having a fist fight in the schoolyard what becomes most obvious yet often overlooked by the spectators is not how different they are but rather how much the two boys mirror each other and so i just I guess this, uh, I didn't even notice this before, but this concept of mirroring really comes up, you know, like when you see something that that really turns you off or really makes you think that you need to go and condemn that person, like what are the odds that that person actually looks a lot like you do? Um, Colin lended a few thoughts to the debate. He said, <laughs> America, we can do better or perhaps it is what we deserve. Amen. Uh, he also said what we saw was a culmination of the hyper-escalation of the importance of presidential power. Um, and then Colin finishes off by saying, as far as winners and losers, America lost last night. And I have to agree. I, I think that's well stated. I mean, America lost last night. And I think America maybe was revealed to itself last night or rather two nights ago in the debate. Um, it was a spectacle. I seen one of my friends um, wrote that he teaches, um, I believe he teaches ancient Greece to seventh graders. And he said, if the debate that happened last night would have taken place in ancient Greece, um, the two debaters would have been Sparta kicked off of the stage. And yeah, I think in, in, in some way, maybe we wish that's what would have happened. So let's hope that, um, you know, maybe this, this delve into... Into American society, the reality that we have um, built for ourselves, where we really, we really don't enter into dialogue thoughtfully. You know, we aren't really those who wrestle with God. We're those who wrestle with each other. And so, you know, maybe that doesn't have to be the place that we stay. Maybe we could come out of that. I think that would be, um, I think that would be good. Um, I want to close this episode. Um, much the way it started, just with this, just with giving voice to this idea that 
the truth is so big. It is so powerful. The truth is a person and that person loves us. That person does not change. Um, it, he is making us into who we are. And I think that to, to be, to honor Christ, to honor the work that he's doing means that we don't shy away from talking about the places where he leads us. We don't talk, we don't shy away about, you know, associating in conversations that make us uncomfortable. It, it means we, we don't have to just write people off. We can engage with them. Rich Mullins summarizes um, one of the creeds, and he says, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and dead and buried. And I believe what I believe, and that's what makes me what I am. I did not make it, but it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. I believe that he who suffered was crucified, buried, and dead. He descended into hell and on the third day rose again. He ascended into heaven where he sits at God's mighty right hand. And I believe that he's returning to judge the quick and the dead and the sons of men. And I believe what I believe, and that's what makes me what I am. I did not make it. It is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection and I believe in a life that never ends. I think, um, I think U2, U2 does this as well. I wanna, what does Bono say? Um, when all the colors bleed into one, I believe in the kingdom come. When all the colors bleed into one, yeah. Thank you guys for joining us for uh, episode four. Look forward to seeing you again next Thursday as we attempt to have another conversation about ideas that matter here on the Abstract Podcast. Peace. Peace.